Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Tom Zuber. And Tom is a managing partner at Zuber, Lawler, and Del Duca. It's a law firm focusing on IP acquisitions, offerings, and litigation. We're going to hear a little bit more about that. But first, Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bruce. Delighted to be here. I love talking about cannabis. <laughs> Good. So let's find out how you got into it. I always love to hear kind of the stories of how, how does a lawyer end up in the cannabis space? What's the background? Yeah, it's certainly different. Uh, we are a corporate law firm, an M&A law firm, a high-stakes litigation law firm, intellectual property law firm. We do a lot of our work around the world. We represent uh, iconic companies that you uh, hear about uh, every day or, or every week um, in global funds and so forth. We got into the cannabis space by accident, completely yeah. by accident. And what I mean by that is it was a, a function of social relationships. My buddies started cannabis companies. Yeah. I've known these buddies since before they started their cannabis companies. Uh, they've known me since before uh, I co-founded this law firm with my brother Jeff, they've watched our firm grow and we've watched their cannabis companies grow. When anything important came up, they had a serious financing or an acquisition or, or a real dispute, they would call me, first of all, for their matters. And they would tell their buddies, call my buddy Tom. His yeah. law firm is in this space. They're doing this stuff. So I guess in that sense, we were kind of alone for, oh, most of the last 12 years. It yeah. wasn't until about a year or two ago that other corporate, other M&A, other IP and high stakes litigation firms, international firms started to show up. And so we, we've got uh, quite a bit of a head start uh, on on most of our colleagues uh, in the legal industry that focus on the same things we do. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and someone with that amount of experience in the cannabis space is, is hard to come by. So I appreciate the yeah. time on, on here. So tell me a little bit about like, what were you doing in the beginning? So these were um, kind of business transactions. I mean, what were the legal issues 12 years ago that people were grappling with when it came to cannabis businesses? It tended toward 
corporate work, finance work. Yeah. We're taking in some money and also disputes, corporate disputes. Yeah. You start out with a few partners in a, you start a corporation together or now all yeah. together and then one or more. Yeah. Kind of unwinding issues and stuff. Are getting along with the others. Yeah. Uh, and, and those at times have gotten pretty ugly. So we were brought in to clean things up to yeah. achieve a settlement or uh, sometimes to, to get rough. Yeah. And that's that was in the beginning. I would say those were the largest sorts of matters. Right? Yeah. No. As so as things grown, like so as as this market has matured, what have been the more interesting or the the kind of the changes in the work that you've been doing or the the work that people come to you for or the issues and challenges people have? So it was. Um, it's interesting because the the cannabis industry, our representations at least, started to catch up with the rest of our practice. Right. So uh, again, I was receiving friends who were saying, "Hey." help us out. Um, and, uh, friends were sending friends saying, Hey, help us out. But it wasn't really, the companies weren't yet as sophisticated as they are today. Increasingly today, uh, it's evolved into representations relating to trademark litigation, yeah. protecting technology in relation to patent rights around the world, IPOs. We represent companies that are going public in Canada mm-hmm. and other forms of high stakes deal work and, and, uh, litigation work acquisitions. Yeah. That sort of work is is what occupies most of our time spent representing cannabis companies these days. Yeah. And I, and I would imagine like on one hand, you know, a cannabis business is just like any business and has kind of the same kind of legal challenges. On the other hand, we're in this whole kind of weird federal illegality state, you know, authorized kind of world here. Like, yeah. what, what are the kind of the primary issues people need to be aware of as they're kind of thinking about you know, it, cannabis businesses, and we can kind of break it up a little bit into kind of plant touching and non-plant touching if you want. But like, just give us a little bit of a sense of why this is sort of challenging or why this is complicated from a legal point of view. Sure. Well, this is unprecedented. We're all chopping down trees in the wilderness here. It's even weirder than <laughs> alcohol prohibition, right? Yeah. In the 20s. Alcohol prohibition, it was legal and then it was illegal. And that was it. Here we've got this weird bifurcation between federal and state where the federal government says it's illegal, but hey, we're looking the other way, as long as you states are okay with it. And then the states say it's uh, increasingly say it's legal. And that, and furthermore, to varying degrees, some states are legal only on the medical level, and some states are legal also at the recreational level. Some states still haven't caught up. So that's just weird, and it's unprecedented. That is complex on the one hand, but it's also filled with opportunity, right? Because that landscape appears tough to navigate at first, but it's really quite straightforward. And there are opportunities here to really take a leap forward beyond the rest of the industry. So in other words, what I'm saying is that to the savvy cannabis CEO, these impediments, uh, these difficulties, these complexities can actually act as a filter to weed out competition. And uh, that's the way that we pitch it to our most sophisticated cannabis clients. We say, look, this is all opportunity here. Because uh, this stuff is tougher to navigate than, than the regulatory terrain, than the legal terrain and appropriate or relevant to other industries. Yeah. Uh, and we encourage you to take a big picture view on how to utilize this complexity to your competitive advantage. Yeah. And that's a pretty exciting conversation. Well, and I like that approach. I think it's it's refreshing for me to hear a lawyer talk about it as a business opportunity. I think a lot of, a lot of lawyers just mount up the risk and the things you need to be careful of. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that's the exciting yeah. part of it. From that sort of entrepreneurial side of it is is that complexity creates you know creates opportunity in the market and then create opportunity for innovation. What Indeed. what are some of the like I know that, that some of the big issues that I've seen come up when you go to actually 
sort of handle corporate matters, there are, I know there are some things that become complicated, things particularly around IP and copyrights and trademarks and things like that, patents. Can you give us a quick a quick understanding of why what ends up happening with some of those things when you try to build a brand or you're trying to build a company and, and what's enforceable and what's not enforceable? Sure. Well, there are distinctions as far as what's enforceable and not enforceable as between patents and trademarks, for instance, right? No. So first, a lot of folks don't recognize, even a lot of lawyers don't know that there's nothing in the patent statute, which of course is federal. There's no mm-hmm. such thing as state patent protection yeah. uh, in the United States. Uh, the, the federal patent statute includes no reference to illegal subject matter yeah. being a, an obstacle to patentability. So I'll say that again. You yeah, say it a, again. <laughs> if you have a process for making better cocaine and it's innovative, novel and non-obvious, you should patent it because the federal government will allow you to do so. So you can get the patent. I guess the question is, is can you like once you have the patent, what can you enforce? I mean, can you can you prohibit someone else's business activities based on that patent for a better illegal substance? Well, that's an astute question, Bruce. And the answer is depends. Sort of. <laughs> and really, it's it's closer on the side of no, oftentimes, than toward the yes end of the spectrum. So what I mean by that is you're going to be hard pressed to find a federal judge that's going to award you a bunch of damages relating to the illegal sale of cocaine in the example that I had given, right? On the other hand, that same technology might be used in other industries, right? So even though you discovered in relation to cocaine, perhaps somebody else is using it in the pharmaceutical industry, that same process or that mechanism, that same machine. And in that instance, despite the illegal origins of the technology described in the relevant patent, a federal judge actually would assert that patent, would would allow you to assert that patent against legal revenue streams. Yeah. So I, I'm curious, is that why? Because this is what I've seen a lot is, uh, you know, a lot of companies are kind of, you know, approaching, you know, trademarks, patents, you know, copyright stuff where they're doing it around just plant extracts, you know, it could be various, you know, they're, they're kind of genericizing it to be around uh, an herbal extract of, you know, of general terms or, you know, uh, of legal terms, and then applying it to the to the cannabis market on a state by state level. What is this? Is that why I'm seeing some of this stuff? Because people are trying to get around this whole, you know, they don't want to directly identify it as being a cannabis specific process or brand. And so they're keeping it more general so they can get that protection. Well, we don't advise that if I've understood you correctly. So let me rephrase, make sure that I'm answering the the right question. Do we recommend as a law firm that folks hide the ball as far as the fact that they are a cannabis company? Absolutely not. We do not. Not Uh, In fact, that's grounds. Let's take a trademark, for instance. Yeah. Uh, if you're hiding the ball from the PTO, the Patent and Trademark Office, in order to obtain a registration, and to be more precise, you're not disclosing that, in fact, some of your goods described in the application are cannabis goods. Yeah. That's canceling the, the result. Invalidate. Invalidate. Right. And I'll, I'll, do my, I'll do my disclaimer for everyone listening to the podcast that we're not, we're not giving out legal advice here. We're talking about the nature of the business. But yeah, I think, that, I think that's interesting. Yes. If I could, there's no legal relationship between myself and any listener, uh, <laughs> not without a fully executed written engagement letter. Thank you. For- <laughs> which which will we'll provide email addresses on how to get later in the program. Because I think that's that is uh, I think something people still struggle with. I think people that are trying to build brands, trying to build IP, have not really figured out how to successfully kind of navigate these waters. And I think I'm kind of curious personally what's going to happen when it does go federally legal, uh, and all of a sudden now the federal game is in play, and you've got all these businesses that are in flight. I'm assuming there's going to be some kind of you know sort of very quick turf war about people you know gobbling up these. The brands and the IP, I just, I, I'm sensing there's going to be a big 
a big event once it goes federally legal around IP and copyright and uh, trademarks. What do you think? Am I I over-exaggerating what might happen here? Bruce, you're right on the money. In fact, I'll go ahead and amplify your statement. Uh, Let's talk about patents. The patent wars are coming to cannabis, the way that they uh, dominated the transgenic corn industry. Uh, I started my legal career. They're going to dominate the cannabis landscape, and they will weed out a great deal of the the cannabis marketplace. Uh, Companies that own the best patents uh, will be achieving more dominant positions than companies that don't in in, uh, other things being equal. Uh, In relation to brands, once prohibition ends, the world will be increasingly focused on federal and global brands, and there will be less emphasis on state-by-state brand protection. And in fact, it is possible to achieve meaningful federal trademark protection for cannabis brands. And in fact, we're doing that for our clients. It involves full disclosure to the PTO as relates to the cannabis nature of our client's business. But at the same time, we're able to surgically articulate the the subject matter that the PTO finds acceptable and at the same time is relevant to cannabis businesses. So to be clear, we're not talking about hats and T-shirts and jeans, which is uh, pretty meaningless to a company that's not a clothing company, right? We're talking about products that are within the zone of relevance to cannabis companies. So that's obviously a complicated argument, but uh, what I'm saying is that it is possible. My law firm is absolutely out in front on that issue. And it's exciting because when prohibition ends, the companies that have federal and global trademark protection are going to have an extraordinary leg up on the companies that don't. To put a finer point on it, even in the short term, we're seeing the dramatic results of companies that have failed to protect their brands at the federal level and at the global level because knockoff companies are acquiring rights in states in which cannabis companies are not yet doing business, right? So you'll have a cannabis company that will build a brand out here on the West Coast in in Oregon or California or Nevada, Colorado, and another company will start building up rights in another state. And so when that company begins to prepare to go public and we're involved in those representations, you begin looking under rocks because it's relevant uh, to the public disclosures in that context. And there's a lot to be found under those rocks. And just to make sure I, I understand what you're talking about. So you, you have a, an established brand that's doing business in, say, California. They are building the brand, doing the business in that state. Some other company basically takes that brand, establishes it in another state. And so when that company goes federal or, or starts to look to doing business in that state, they're, they're now there's conflict, there's IP conflict within that other state. How does it get resolved? I mean, this goes to the state court. I mean, how do, how do you protect these things? So, well, that's a big question. And I'd have to make assumptions in order to uh, answer it with any sort of precision. So let me make a couple of assumptions. Yeah. One, let me assume that unfair competition doesn't come into play. Okay. That they by a former employee yeah. walking out the back door with an anticipated launch of a brand uh, doesn't come into play. And those sorts of other issues don't come into play. The only thing that's relevant is trademark law. Yeah. In that context, let me also make the assumption that the first company was, uh, uh, let's call it Company A, or Company 1 that was using the brand first, let's say in California. And then a second company began selling another cannabis product in, Mm -hmm. say, Ohio. And that uh, company in Ohio is selling the cannabis product in Ohio after Company 1 was selling in California, but before Company 1 started selling in Ohio. Yeah, exactly. At that point, in the absence of federal trademark protection, that second company, Company Number 2, owns right to that brand in Ohio. In Ohio. That's the way it works, because in the absence of federal brand protection, 
you by definition are relying on state by state brand protection. So it's just a, it's every state is an island and you've got to you've got to claim your trademark on that island or claim your IP on that island. That's right. That seems like a lot of work. <laughs> it is. And in fact, it's, uh, I think, impractical to keep up with brand protection state yeah. by state, because, of course, cannabis is currently a schedule one substance. You can't put cannabis in the back of a truck and transport it across state lines. You've got a a cannabis company with national ambitions must begin its operations anew in each state, begin the process of of creating rights to their brands state by state. Federal trademark protection is meant to address that circumstance directly uh, by uh, achieving brand protection throughout the land. And that's why it's so critical for cannabis companies to focus on this. Cannabis companies have largely been scared off by a notion, an incorrect notion, that it's not possible to obtain meaningful trademark protection for cannabis brands. It absolutely is. Again, it involves being completely forthright with the PTO about the fact that cannabis is relevant to the application. Yeah. we, we sort of start with that assumption. Excellent. Um, and and talk to me a little bit about international rights. And, you know, as I think that one of the interesting things about this market right now is that so much is happening on the international level. If I have a, a brand or an IP, how do I protect that now that this is going really global in terms of a market? Well, first, as far as protecting a brand, I, I'd like to give a larger, broader answer to that question. Sure. But let me give a specific answer first to make sure I've, I've answered your question directly. There are treaties. So, for instance, the Madrid Protocol, mm-hmm. over 100 countries throughout the world are signatories to it. Uh, the Madrid Protocol allows you to, for instance, claim uh, brand rights, trademark rights for, let's say, the European Union or countries, individual countries within the European Union, while referencing a priority date achieved by the filing of a U.S. trademark application for that same brand in regard to James Goods and Services. So it's quite a wonderful thing. So uh, by filing, in fact, here in the United States, achieving a priority date here in the United States, uh, you can go ahead and file a so-called international application under the Madrid Protocol and name not only the European Union, but the other countries that are signatories to the Madrid Protocol and thereby establish a global filing date that references your U.S. priority date. And it's quite a powerful treaty. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like, um, you know, given the way the market's going and the, the international kind of model or the international business that's that is appearing on the scene it's um it would be something that you probably want to look into or at least companies need to be aware of indeed so other uh, other than kind of the ip side of things uh what else have you seen kind of play out in terms of ipos i mean i know that you know canada is kind of the big the big place right now to do offerings how have these been playing out what would have been some of the things you've noticed about the initial public offering market for cannabis sure well the money's in canada and uh Many of the brands, much of the talent is here in the United States. So what you see is an inflow of cash from the Canada to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that can happen in terms of acquisitions, in terms of financing, and also in terms of IPO, in terms of U.S. companies going public on the Canadian stock exchange. Mm-hmm. So that's happening. We're involved in those representations. The uh, There are a number of factors to take into consideration here. One, the country seems to be headed toward a descheduling of cannabis at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, uh, companies, of course, are going to begin looking toward the American stock exchanges, the uh, New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, and, and so forth. So when that happens, the, it seems likely that the attractiveness of the Canadian stock market, uh, Canadian capital, will decrease to some uh, extent. Yeah. Two, in the meantime, what you're seeing is a an irony play out in the sense that companies that are 
touching the plant in Canada, yeah. Canadian companies are able to go public on the American stock exchange because they're not violating U.S. law. Yeah. <laughs> and a U.S. company that is doing the same thing in the U.S. is not able to go public on the American stock exchanges because they are violating U.S. federal yeah, law. Yeah, and then I, maybe to back up for a, for a second for folks is – so a, a company who is touching the plant, who has operations that actually touch uh, cannabis material, extracts, any any part of the plant that deals with THC is breaking federal law, therefore cannot use the 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 markets to raise capital. I mean, that's that's essentially the issue, right? So, so now what happens is they can go, can I, as a U.S. company, go do an offering on the Canadian market? What prevents me from doing an offering on the Canadian market? You can. The Toronto Stock Exchange will not allow you to list. It has similar restrictions. Uh, because you're the, breaking U.S. law. Yes, correct. So Got if it. you're breaking the, the laws of, of another country, your home country, the, the Toronto Stock Exchange uh, will uh, not allow you to list. Yeah, even, even if I was doing even if it was a US cannabis touching company getting acquired by a Canadian cannabis touching company they wouldn't be able to do it because they're now they would be delisted because they're now breaking US law because yes. they, have, they have a an asset or they have a, a wholly owned company that is that is in violation of US law fascinating so that sets up a, a whole host of dynamics around Capitalization. So if I'm a U.S. company, I'm looking to basically capitalize. I'm looking for capital to expand my operations. Where do I go? I can't do public offerings. What are people doing? How are people raising money these days? There are a number of ways. One, money is finding its way into the U.S. through other means. So, mm -hmm. for instance, direct investment, right? Acquisition by companies that are not public. Mm -hmm. uh, you have funds. Uh, here in the U.S. that are increasingly looking to the cannabis space to find opportunities. We represent some of these companies. No. Uh, so uh, it, it actually is quite exciting. You have also, uh, there are ways to uh, structure things at a corporate level such that plant-touching things do not coincide with yeah. listed companies. Seems and like cross-contamination so is a pretty big issue. Like if I, if I do an acquisition or I have an investment in one of these companies, like so you can, you can legally set up enough of a buffer, enough of a separation of, of these things where you're not going to taint my non-plant-touching business with the, uh, you know, from a federal regulation point of view. Yes. Well, you have, for instance, uh, uh, MedMen is acquiring retail shops throughout mm -hmm. the U.S., and uh, they are also listed on the Canadian exchange. So that that's one example here. So there there are ways to achieve that, but uh, it, it's important to structure things such that you don't offend. If you, if you're going to register on the Toronto Stock Exchange or the American Stock Exchange, it's important that you structure things very carefully, so that you uh, because they don't allow you the same freedom uh, that MedMen is currently enjoying. Yeah, it's sort of that whole idea of piercing the corporate veil. You know, you got You have to keep it and have to be consistent. And once it once it's gone, it's gone, and you're kind of. You're then open to open to liability. Well, uh, also, if I didn't say so expressly, Bruce, there's also a, a distinction between the Canadian stock exchanges and the other stock exchanges that I had referenced. The Canadian stock okay. exchanges, which does not prohibit companies from touching the plant, yeah. uh, even in the United States. Yeah. So uh, that's that's why MedMen can list there in Canada. Got it. Got it. Yeah. yeah so it seems like getting uh, good guidance, good advice on how to navigate these things is money well spent these days because getting it wrong could be pretty costly. What else, any, any other um, thoughts? I mean, uh, you know, given the, you know, if I'm a business person interested in getting into the cannabis space, you know, you know entrepreneur or, or um, you know, looking to do acquisitions and stuff, what else do I need to kind of keep in mind as I navigate the opportunities in the market here? So I would say three things. Uh, first, I, I would touch on uh, technology, meaning the patentable technology uh, mm -hmm. and also technology that can be protected by trade secret. This 
is currently not focused on sufficiently uh, in the cannabis industry yeah. uh, for to be focused on licenses and, and other things. And, and they should be focused on those things. Uh, the new regs coming out here in California, they're, they're about to land in, in, in early January. And those are things that, that are important in the short term. But in the long term, it's going to be about technology. It's going to be about patents. It's also going to be the second item I'll mention is, is branding. We've spoken about branding, yeah. protecting uh, with federal trademark protection, global trademark protection, your cannabis brands. Uh, that's going to be vital. And, and that's going to play itself out increasingly, uh, we're going to discover that the cannabis industry is a technology industry, like the yeah. pharmaceutical industry is a technology industry. We're going to discover that it's an industry of brands. The brands are, are going to rise to the top as they do in, in any uh, consumer-facing industry. And so that's that's going to play a bigger role. Uh, the, the third thing I would mention to investors is to focus on the licenses. Uh, so as an example, we do work uh, relating to uh, large, well, large for the cannabis industry, large loans and, mm-hmm. and, and financing amounts. And oftentimes these loans are, well, they're a function of real estate and or licenses, yeah. cannabis licenses associated with that real estate. There are restrictions relating to the transfer of ownership, the transfer of rights relating to those cannabis licenses. So before making an investment, a thorough exploration of the hair on those licenses, yeah. Yeah. Associated real estate is would be wise. Yeah, I've heard a lot of a lot of stories around trying to um, trying to get the licenses, trying to transfer the real estate, trying to get the real estate set up, capitalize it, you know, actually get development stuff. It's uh, it's a little tricky. So right. uh, you know, again, those that get it right have a have an advantage. They get to play uh, a little barrier to entry there, but it's uh, it is part of the business. So, Tom, we're just about out of time here. If if people want to know more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to find out more information? Thank you for asking, Bruce. Uh, our website is zuberlaw.com. That's Z as in zebra, U, B as in boy, E-R-L-A-W.com. And my email address is tzuber. That's T as in Tom, C as in zebra, U, B as in boy, E-R, at zuberlaw.com. Great. I'll make sure that both of those are in the show notes here so people can click through and get a hold of you. Tom, this has been a pleasure. I've, I've actually learned quite a bit. I appreciate the time, and I'm looking forward to keeping in touch. Same here, Bruce. Thank you. I enjoy talking about this subject matter. It's very exciting. And uh, you're doing great work educating the world uh, about this uh, wonderful uh, world of cannabis. So I appreciate uh, your work very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's it's always fun. See you. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.